Chapter Two of Ayala's Angel. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Ayala's Angel by Anthony Trollope. Chapter Two. Lucy with her aunt Dossett. For some days, Lucy found herself to be absolutely crushed. In the first place, by a strong resolution to do some disagreeable duty and then by a feeling that there was no duty the doing of which was within her reach. It seemed to her that her whole life was a blank. Her father's house had been a small affair, and considered to be poor when compared with the Tringle mansion, but she now became aware that everything there had in truth abounded. In one little room there had been two or three hundred beautifully bound books. That Moody's unnumbered volumes should come into the house as they were wanted had almost been as much a provision of nature as water, gas, and hot rolls for breakfast. A piano of the best kind, and always in order, had been a first necessary of life, and, like other necessaries, of course, forthcoming. There had been the little room in which the girls painted, joining their father's studio and sharing its light, surrounded by every pretty female appliance. Then there had always been visitors. The artists from Kensington had been wont to gather there, and the artists' daughters, and perhaps the artists' sons. Every day had had its round of delights, its round of occupations, as the girls would call them. There had been some reading, some painting, some music, perhaps a little needlework, and a great deal of talking. How little do we know how other people live in the houses close to us! We see the houses looking like our own, and we see the people come out of them looking like ourselves. But a Chinaman is not more different from the English John Bull than is number ten from number eleven. Here there are books, paintings, music, wine, a little dilettante getting up of subjects of the day, a little dilettante thinking on great affairs, perhaps a little dilettante religion, few domestic laws and those easily broken, few domestic duties and those easily evaded, breakfast when you will with dinner almost as little binding, with much company and acknowledged aptitude for idle luxury. That is life at number ten. At number eleven everything is cased in iron. There shall be equal plenty, but at number eleven even plenty is a bondage. Duty rules everything, and it has come to be acknowledged that duty is to be hard. So many hours of needlework, so many hours of books, so many hours of prayer— that all the household shall shiver before daylight is a law, the breach of which by any member either augurs sickness or requires condign punishment. To be comfortable is a sin, to laugh is almost equal to bad language. Such and so various is life at number ten and at number eleven. From one extremity, as far removed, to another, poor Lucy had been conveyed, though all the laws were not exactly carried out in Kingsbury Crescent as they have been described at number eleven. The enforced prayers were not there, nor the early hours. It was simply necessary that Lucy should be down to breakfast at nine, and had she not appeared, nothing violent would have been said. But it was required of her that she should endure a life which was altogether without adornment. Uncle Dossett himself, as a clerk in the Admiralty, had a certain position in the world which was sufficiently maintained by decent apparel, a well-kept, slight grey whisker, and an umbrella which seemed never to have been violated by use. Dossett was popular at his office, and was regarded by his brother clerks as a friend. But no one was acquainted with his house and home. They did not dine with him, nor he with them. There are such men in all public offices, not the less respected because of the quiescence of their lives. It was known of him that he had burdens, though it was not known what his burdens were. His friends, therefore, were intimate with him as far as the entrance into Somerset House, where his duties lay, and not beyond it. 
Lucy was destined to know the other side of his affairs, the domestic side, which was as quiet as the official side. The link between them, which consisted of a journey by the underground railway to the Temple Station, and a walk home along the embankment and across the parks and Kensington Gardens, was the pleasantest part of Dossett's life. Mr. Dossett's salary has been said to be nine hundred pounds per annum. What a fund of comfort there is in the word! When the youth of nineteen enters an office, how far beyond want would he think himself should he ever reach the pecuniary paradise of nine hundred pounds a year? How he would see all his friends, and in return be seen of them! But when the income has been achieved, its capabilities are found to be by no means endless. And Dossett, in the earlier spheres of his married life, had unfortunately anticipated something of such comforts. For a year or two he had spent a little money imprudently. Something which he had expected had not come to him, and, as a result, he had been forced to borrow, and to insure his life for the amount borrowed. Then, too, when that misfortune as to the money came, came from the non-realisation of certain claims which his wife had been supposed to possess, provision also had to be made for her. In this way, an assurance office ate up a large fraction of his income, and left him with means which, in truth, were very straitened. Dossett at once gave up all glories of social life, settled himself in Kingsbury Crescent, and resolved to satisfy himself with his walk across the park, and his frugal dinner afterwards. He never complained to any one, nor did his wife. He was a man small enough to be contented with a thin existence, but far too great to ask any one to help him to widen it. Sir Thomas Tringle never heard of that £175 paid annually to the assurance office, nor had Lady Tringle, Dossett's sister, even heard of it. When it was suggested to him that he should take one of the Dormer girls, he consented to take her, and said nothing of the assurance office. Mrs. Dossett had had her great blow in life, and had suffered more, perhaps, than her husband. This money had been expected. There had been no doubt of the money, at any rate on her part. It did not depend on an old gentleman, with or without good intentions, but simply on his death. There was to be ever so much of it, four or five hundred a year, which would last for ever. When the old gentleman died, which took place some ten years after Dossett's marriage, it was found that the money, tied tight as it had been by half a dozen lawyers, had in some fashion vanished. Whither it had gone is little to our purpose, but it had gone. Then there came a great crash upon the Dossetts, which she for a while had been hardly able to endure. But when she had collected herself together after the crash, and had made up her mind, as had Dossett also, to the nature of the life which they must in future lead, she became more stringent in it even than he. He could bear, and say nothing. But she, in bearing, found herself compelled to say much. It had been her fault, the fault of people on her side, and she would fain have fed her husband with the full floury potato while she ate only the rind. She told him, unnecessarily, over and over again, that she had ruined him by her marriage. No such idea was ever in his head. The thing had come, and so it must be. There was food to eat, potatoes enough for both, and a genteel house in which to live. He could still be happy if she would not groan. A certain amount of groaning she did postpone while in his presence. The sewing of seams and the darning of household linen, which in his eyes amounted to groaning, was done in his absence. After their genteel dinner he would sleep a little, and she would knit. He would have his glass of wine, but would make his bottle of port last almost for a week. 
This was the house to which Lucy Dormer was brought when Mr. Dossett had consented to share with Sir Thomas the burden left by the death of the improvident artist. When a month passed by, Lucy began to think that time itself would almost drive her mad. Her father had died early in September. The Tringles had then, of course, been out of town, but Sir Thomas and his wife had found themselves compelled to come up on such an occasion. Something, they knew, must be done about the girls, and they had not chosen that that something should be done in their absence. Mr. Dossett was also enjoying his official leave of absence for the year, but was enjoying it within the economical precincts of Kingsbury Crescent. There was but seldom now an excursion for him or his wife to the joys of the country. Once, some years ago, they had paid a visit to the palatial luxuries of Glen Bogie, but the delights of the place had not paid for the expense of the long journey. They, therefore, had been at hand to undertake their duties. Dossett and Tringle, with a score of artists, had followed poor Dormer to his grave in Kensal Green, and then Dossett and Tringle had parted again, probably not to see each other for another term of years. "'My dear, what do you like to do with your time?' Mrs. Dossett said to her niece after the first week. At this time Lucy's wardrobe was not yet of a nature to need much work over its ravages. The Dormer girls had hardly known where their frocks had come from when they wanted frocks, hardly with more precision than the Tringle girls. Frocks had come, dark gloomy frocks lately, alas, and these two had now come a second time. Let creditors be ever so unsatisfied, new raiment will always be found for mourning families. Everything about Lucy was nearly new. The need of repairing would come upon her by degrees, but it had not come as yet. Therefore there had seemed to the anxious aunt to be a necessity for some such question as the above. "'I'll do anything you like, aunt,' said Lucy. "'It is not for me, my dear. I get through a deal of work, and am obliged to do so.' She was, at this time, sitting with a sheet in her lap which she was turning. Lucy had, indeed, once offered to assist, but her assistance had been rejected. This had been two days since, and she had not renewed the proposal as she should have done. This had been mainly from bashfulness, though the work would certainly be distasteful to her, she would do it. But she had not liked to seem to interfere, not having as yet fallen into the ways of intimacy with her aunt. "'I don't want to burden you with my task-work,' continued Mrs. Dossett. "'But I'm afraid you seem to be listless.' "'I was reading till just before you spoke,' said Lucy, again turning her eyes to the little volume of poetry, which was one of the few treasures which she had brought away with her from her old home. "'Reading is very well, but I do not like it as an excuse, Lucy.' Lucy's anger boiled within her when she was told of an excuse, and she declared to herself that she could never like her aunt. "'I am quite sure that for young girls, as well as for old women, there must be a great deal of waste time, unless there be needle and thread always about. And I know, too, unless ladies are well off, they cannot afford to waste time any more than gentlemen.' In the whole course of her life nothing so much like scolding as this had ever been addressed to her. So, at least, thought Lucy at that moment. Mrs. Dossett had intended the remarks all in good part, thinking them to be simply fitting from an aunt to a niece. It was her duty to give advice, and for the giving of such advice some day must be taken as the beginning. She had purposely allowed a week to run by, and now she had spoken her word, as she thought, in good season. To Lucy it was a new and most bitter experience. Though she was reading the Idols of the King, or pretending to read them, she was in truth thinking of all that had gone from her. Her mind had, at that moment, been intent upon her mother, 
who in all respects had been so different from this careful sheet-darning housewife of a woman. And in thinking of her mother there had no doubt been regrets for many things of which she would not have ventured to speak, as sharing her thoughts with the memory of her mother, but which were nevertheless there to add darkness to the retrospective. Everything behind had been so bright, and everything behind had gone away from her. Everything before was so gloomy, and everything before must last for so long. After her aunt's lecture about wasted time, Lucy sat silent for a few minutes, and then burst into uncontrolled tears. "'I did not mean to vex you,' said her aunt. "'I was thinking of my darling, darling mamma," sobbed Lucy. "'Of course, Lucy, you will think of her. How should you not? And of your father?' Those are sorrows which must be borne. But sorrows such as those are much lighter to the busy than to the idle. I sometimes think that the labourers grieve less for those they love than we do, just because they have not time to grieve. "'I wish I were a labourer, then,' said Lucy, through her tears. "'You may be, if you will. The sooner you begin to be a labourer, the better for yourself and for those about you.' That Aunt Dossett's voice was harsh was not her fault nor that in the obduracy of her daily life she had lost much of her original softness. She had simply meant to be useful and to do her duty, but in telling Lucy that it would be better that the labouring should be commenced at once for the sake of those about you, who could only be Aunt Dossett herself, she had seemed to the girl to be harsh, selfish, and almost unnatural. The volume of poetry fell from her hand, and she jumped up from the chair quickly. "'Give it me at once,' she said, taking hold of the sheet— which was not itself a pleasant object. Lucy had never seen such a thing at the bijou. "'Give it me at once,' she said, and clawed the long folds of linen nearly out of her aunt's lap. "'I did not mean anything of the kind,' said Aunt Dossett. "'You should not take me up in that way. I am speaking only for your good, because I know that you should not dawdle away your existence. Leave the sheet.' Lucy did leave the sheet, and then, sobbing violently, ran out of the room up to her own chamber. Mrs. Dossett determined that she would not follow her. She partly forgave the girl because of her sorrows, partly reminded herself that she was not soft and facile as had been her sister-in-law, Lucy's mother, and then, as she continued her work, she assured herself that it would be best to let her niece have her cry out upstairs. Lucy's violence had astonished her for a moment, but she had taught herself to think it best to allow such little ebullitions to pass off by themselves. Lucy, when she was alone, flung herself upon her bed in absolute agony. She thought that she had misbehaved, and yet how cruel, how harsh had been her aunt's words. If she, the quiet one, had misbehaved, what would Ayala have done? And how was she to find strength with which to look forward to the future? She struggled hard with herself for a resolution. Should she determine that she would henceforth darn sheets morning, noon, and night till she worked her fingers to the bone? Perhaps there had been something of truth in that assertion of her aunt's that the labourers have no time to grieve. As everything else was shut out from her, it might be well for her to darn sheets. Should she rush down penitent and beg her aunt to allow her to commence at once? She would have done it as far as the sheets were concerned, but she could not do it as regarded her aunt. She could put herself into unison with the crumpled soiled linen, but not with the hard woman." Oh, how terrible was the change! Her father and her mother, who had been so gentle to her, all the sweet prettinesses of her life, all her occupations, all her friends, all her delights, even Ayala was gone from her. 
How was she to bear it? She begrudged Ayala nothing, no, nothing. But yet it was hard. Ayala was to have everything. Aunt Emmeline, though they had not hitherto been very fond of Aunt Emmeline, was sweetness itself as compared with this woman. The sooner you begin to labour, the better for yourself and those about you. Would it not have been fitter that she should have been sent at once to some actual poorhouse, in which there would have been no mistake as to her position? That it should all have been decided for her and Ayala, not by any will of their own, not by any concert between themselves, but simply by the fantasy of another? Why should she thus be made a slave to the fantasy of any one? Let Ayala have her uncle's wealth and her aunt's palaces at her command, and she would walk out simply a pauper into the world, into some workhouse, so that at least she need not be obedient to the harsh voice and the odious common sense of her aunt Dossett. But how should she take herself to some workhouse? In what way could she prove her right to be admitted even then? It seemed to her that the same decree which had admitted Ayala into the golden halls of the fairies had doomed her not only to poverty but to slavery. There was no escape for her from her aunt and her aunt's sermons. "'Oh, Ayala, my darling, my own one, oh, Ayala, if you did but know,' she said to herself. What would Ayala think? How would Ayala bear it, should she but guess by what a gulf was her heaven divided from her sister's hell? "'I will never tell her,' she said to herself. "'I will die, and she shall never know.' As she lay there sobbing, all the gilded things of the world were beautiful in her eyes. Alas, yes, it was true. The magnificence of the mansion at Queen's Gate, the glories of Glenbogie, the closely studied comforts of Merle Park, as the place in Sussex was called, all the carriages and horses, Madame Tonsorville and all the draperies, the seats at the Albert Hall into which she had been accustomed to go with as much ease as into her bedroom, the box at the opera, the pretty furniture, the frequent gems, even the raiment which would make her pleasing to the eyes of men whom she would like to please. All these things grew in her eyes and became beautiful. Number three, Kingsbury Crescent, was surely, of all places on the earth's surface, the most ugly. And yet, yet she had endeavoured to do her duty. "'If it had been the workhouse, I could have borne it,' she said to herself, "'but not to be the slave of my Aunt Dossett.' Again she appealed to her sister. "'Oh, Ayala, if you did but know it!' Then she remembered herself, declaring that it might have been worse to Ayala than even to her. "'If one had to bear it, it was better for me,' she said, as she struggled to prepare herself for her uncle's dinner. End of chapter 2